Welcome back to the G3 Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Bice, and today we're going to be including a special episode of the G3 Podcast for the listening audience that was taken from a previous recording at a recent event that was held on the campus of Praise Mill Baptist Church on the west side of Atlanta, where I serve as pastor. It was a panel discussion where we discussed issues related to social justice, biblical justice, biblical wisdom, and the gospel. And I was joined by two friends, Daryl Harrison and Virgil Walker from the Just Thinking podcast. It was a helpful conversation as we applied biblical wisdom and as we applied the gospel to this very complex, woke movement that is not only present in our culture around the church, but sadly also this social justice movement, this woke movement, is very much present within local churches and evangelical denominations. So it was an encouraging conversation and helpful conversation for those that were in attendance, and we hope that it will be a blessing to you as well. So we'll pick up where we started here recently on the campus of Praise Mill Baptist Church in our panel discussion. And so we want to begin where we, where we should begin, and we want to begin with the Word of God, and we're going to read a passage of Scripture, and then we're going to dive into this conversation. And so as we do so, brothers, we find in, in Micah chapter number 6, verse 8, this verse that is consistently coming before us, and oftentimes really out of context, but in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, it says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And so this evening, as we come together for this conversation, brothers, we want to have an honest conversation about justice, and we want to talk about the issues related to social justice and apply biblical wisdom to this whole scene that we see around us. A few years ago, when we were uh, gathered in, in Dallas, Texas, around a table at the coffee shop, Herb's House Coffee, in what has now become known as the Dallas meeting that formed the Dallas Statement. We discussed the issues of social justice. It was at that table that Dr. John MacArthur stated that he believed that social justice was the most devious and destructive agenda to really affect or to threaten the church of Jesus Christ in his lifetime, perhaps in the last 100 years. So I just want to start off by asking you, do you brothers believe that that is, is true and maybe you could maybe add a couple of comments by, by way of introduction to talk about the subject of social justice. Well, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I remember when he made this statement again with you uh, in an interview uh, that you did when you went uh, out to um, Grace Community Church and, and interviewed him as well. And uh, continued upon that, just he added upon that, just that this was the worst kind of attack uh, that he had seen in, in his lifetime. And uh, I don't disagree. I think that the nature of the clarity of the gospel is, is being challenged. Um, gospel, gospel clarity is being muddied uh, with the idea of a works-based gospel, uh, a gospel that says that, that uh, Christ died for sinners except for the sin of, uh, of racism. Uh, that, uh, that, that in order to atone for that sin, we need to participate in some works-based righteousness. Um, and, and so while in, in some respects it is definitely the issue of our day, I, I'd argue it's probably nothing new. It's, it's not anything new. It's, it's something we've seen before. This is the new iteration. I think what's challenging about it is that we see men who we respect, 
uh, friends of ours who, who are, who've been co-belligerents in the gospel, who have adopted the ideas around social justice. And so you have learned men who know the scripture, who understand uh, what's going on theologically, who, who are muddying the waters. I think that's what's most dangerous about mm. it, uh, is the lack of clarity around these issues because of people that we've trusted uh, for, for decades now who are saying the kinds of things that, that, that really expose the fact that they really don't believe the gospel to be sufficient or scripture to be sufficient and mm. to be enough. Anything you'd add, Daryl? Yeah, I have to agree with both uh, Josh and Virgil here. And I think what makes social justice a threat to the gospel, now we know theologically speaking, okay? Theologically speaking, there's nothing that's a threat to the gospel. Amen. So we know that Christ made that clear, right? That uh, God is <clears throat> going to build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Uh, but what we've forgotten in the church is that the gospel is an offensive worldview. Uh, we're not on the defensive. But if you want to go back as far as 2012 with the Trayvon Martin killing in, uh, near Sanford, Florida, that to me was the initial, uh, shall we say, uh, trigger or quake point with regard to the mm. church. See, social justice takes selective events that occur in society and then try to apply pressure on the church to adopt its approach to dealing with, addressing, or remedying what they deem to be the problem with those uh, selected, selective uh, events. And what makes the social gospel a threat to the church is that the church doesn't know the gospel well enough mm. to defend itself against the heresy of the social gospel. So what you have uh, in terms of what Josh and Virgil were just talking about, you've got men in pulpits within evangelicalism who, instead of defending the truth, are, trying out here to, uh, are out here trying to make friends with the world and saying, well, yeah, you're right about Trayvon Martin. You're right about George Floyd. You're right about Bjorn Taylor. Uh, but against what objective standard are you saying that they're right? Uh, I like that Josh went to Micah 6.8 here because what happens with Micah 6.8 is, is the, it, Micah 6.8 is the pet verse for the social justice movement. Now, what you do when you encounter social justices who want to point out Micah 6.8, what happens with them is that they like that text with respect to the words that appear before the comma. <laughs> but they're not so keen on the words that appear after the comma. There's a comma in that text. So it's always justice, 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 justice. Never love, never mercy, never kindness. You don't hear the social justices talk about what's after the comma in that microverse. But see, we have in the church here today, men in pulpits who are cowards and they do not want to ask the right questions. See, what we have to do is, as, as evangelicals is be able to ask the right questions. Ask a social justice advocate, what do you mean by justice? Right, right. We'll talk about this later, but what's crippling the church today is the social justice movement is hooking evangelicals with language. Mm -hmm. They're using certain words, and we just latch onto those words without questioning what the words mean. 
So we'll talk about that later. Though. Let me add to what you just said about the deconstruction of words. We just did a three-hour podcast about CRT, critical race theory, and one of the things that uh, that the critical race theorists they call themselves crits, um, CR, uh, capital C, capital R, small I, capital T, crits. Um, one of the things that is is the very nature of what they do is they're deconstructionists. Uh, their intention is to deconstruct language. Their intention uh, is to deconstruct power structures. Their intention is to deconstruct things. And the, and the problem has been, I think heretofore, is that to the point that, that Daryl just made, we've not done well with defining our terms. We've lived in what we've considered to be a, a Christian society, a Christian culture. Uh, most folks have a, have a cultural Christian approach to the life that they lead. And so we make assumptions because of that about what we mean by what we say. Uh, so, so rather than defining our terms, which is something we spend a lot of time doing on the Just Thinking podcast, we assume that we all mean the same thing when we say things like justice. We all think we mean the same thing when we say things like mercy. We all believe we mean the same things uh, when, we, when we say things like love. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and freedom and equality and equity. And well, I'm sure we'll jump into all of those terminologies here briefly. But I think the best thing for the clear-headed thinking biblical Christian to do in the, in, the, in the vast majority of instances when they're dealing with someone who they may be concerned with that is a social justician or soft on the issues of culture is to ask, what, when you say the word justice, what do you mean? Uh, when you say the word social justice, what do you mean? When you say the word equality, what do you mean? When, when you say the word human, what do you mean? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it was three, three years ago, we would have never thought uh, about trying to define uh, ideas or thoughts like male and female. But now, given the idea that, that culture has inserted this, this spectrum of gender, we have to now define what we mean by those terms. And it began with, um, with the, with the um, equality, uh, not the Equality Act, the, the, the marriage um, issue with regard to sexuality. Mm -hmm. There was a redefinition of, of marriage, and once that's been redefined, it can mean now any given thing. And so it's, it's important. Again, I'll, 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 I'll stop talking because we can ramble on. You know how we get on just think a three-hour episode. And the like, we, but we, we can have DoorDash deliver something to eat if you yeah, guys keep going. But, but I, th I, think, I think the issue, and again, something tangible that you can take from, from this is, is making sure to ask anyone who you're encountering about specific issues is, is to define the terms. What do you mean by what mm -hmm. you say? So in recent years, the social justice language has become living room conversation, and that's become very commonplace. During this last few years, you guys have been doing a podcast, the Just Thinking Podcast. It's uh, risen really to the top of uh, Christian podcasts in America, um, and it stayed at number one for a time, and, and it stays around in the top 20, and then when you guys release a new podcast, then it, it bumps up. Um, but you guys have been tackling these issues. You've been dealing with... So really, just talk to us about why do you think that what has really become the catalyst to uh, intensifying the social justice controversy? I think it goes back to, again, what I was saying earlier. There's a misunderstanding, misunderstanding about the gospel that the gospel exists to solve the world's problems. 
That is not the purpose of the gospel. When you consider us in this room, I would go ahead and estimate that most of us sitting in this room now, right now would profess to be believers in Jesus Christ. You go back to Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Jesus is named Jesus. Why? Not because he's going to save society. Jesus has the name Jesus because it says in Matthew 1, for he will save his people, his people, from their sins. That's a very specific text. It has a lot in it that we don't have time to unwrap. So I think the catalyst has been, though, again, because we don't know the gospel well enough, that we've embraced the world's, we've sort of acquiesced to the world's uh, pressure in terms of the social justice movement and thinking ourselves to be the arbiters of all the world's problems. So now, uh, the, the, the social gospel looks at the church anytime something happens in the world. So you get a Trayvon Martin killed. You get a George Floyd killed. You get a Breonna Taylor killed. The first thing social justices will do, these are evangelical social justices, by the way, so these are, these are professing Christians who have adopted and embraced and are propagating a social gospel uh, at best and then a uh, liberation theology at worst. Uh, who say, well, what, what, are you, what are you guys going to do about this? Um, and again, we have, as Virgil just, just alluded to, we have to be able to be so adroit and astute in what the gospel is. And in understanding what the gospel is, you also understand what the gospel is not. Okay? So, when you look at Romans 8 and what Paul says about the entire creation being under corruption. When you look at 1 John 5, 19, and what the scriptures say where the apostle John declares unambiguously, he says, and we know that this, the entire world is in the power of the evil one. What we're seeing in society is what we should expect to see from a society that's under the corruption of sin. Now, Virgil and I have said, uh, we emphasized this on our uh, Just Thinking podcast episode on George Floyd and the gospel, an episode I didn't want to do, by the way, as, and, as those of you who have heard that episode can attest. Uh, we made the point in, in, in that episode that an authority figure who wears a badge, that badge is not regenerative. I'm going to repeat that. A badge is not regenerative. Repeating the words of an oath are not regenerative. You know what makes an oath an oath? An oath is only worth the intent in the heart on the part of the person to abide by the words of that oath. So when you see a police officer involved in an incident, um, and let me go ahead and, 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 and say on the other side too, when you see a victim involved in an incident, that should not surprise us. But what we have to do as, as believers in Christ, we have to have, see, see our problem is that we don't have a biblical worldview. Yeah. Um, Herman Bavink, uh, the Dutch Reformed theologian in his book, Christian Worldview, which I encourage all of you to read if you've not yet read that, it's called Christian Worldview by Herman Bavink. Herman Bavink defined worldview 
in terms of having a life and worldview. So in, in Herman Baving's mind, for the Christian, the gospel should so encompass your existence in the world that it starts with your own personal worldview and then works itself out in the world. But see, we have to stop being reactionaries. So Virgil talked about language and the importance of us being aware of the deconstructionism that's going on. One of the things that the social justice movement is trying to deconstruct is the gospel. Absolutely. And what's making it so easy for them to do that, as example by, by so many churches going woke, is that we don't know what the gospel is. So we're making their job a lot easier. We're making their job a lot easier. So again, the, the, uh, the, the engine that's driving the social gospel is partly our fault because we think the gospel is moralism. We think the gospel is helping. See, here's the deal. When you look at the social gospel, We'll talk about terms in a minute, but the, the term social gospel is, is a, a non sequitur. But when you look at the so, what the social gospel wants, you don't need the gospel for that. You don't need this gospel to feed the poor, to clothe the naked, to give jobs to people, to feed the hungry, to, to house the homeless. You don't need the gospel for that. Uh, Muslims do that. So the question becomes, what is, what, what is the distinction between the gospel and Islam in terms of social justice? How would you answer that question? What is the distinction? Because in terms of the social gospel, any worldview will work. Any worldview. Listen, pick up any quote-unquote sacred book of any religion that exists on the face of the planet, and they are all works righteousness. All of them are. But see, we've got this idea in the church that, that Christ came to save society. As we said on the podcast, Christ didn't come to save society. Christ came to save sinners. 2 Peter 3.13 says, for believers, for us in the church, we're looking for a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Why are we trying to create heaven down here? But that's, that's the trap of the social gospel. That is the trap. The trap of the social gospel says that you can have heaven on earth. All we need to do is this, 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 this. And again, that totally eliminates the role of Christ. You don't need this in order to achieve the social gospel, but you won't know that if you don't know what the social gospel is and what its objectives are. I, I wouldn't, I, I really don't need to add to that um, because that was, I mean, covers the in, in, entire ground. The only, the only add on that, I, I just turned... Uh, in, in the scripture, um, because the catalyst of that is the, is the depravity of the human heart. Um, it really goes back to the nature of sin and what happened in the garden. Uh, it, n none of this is new. I keep saying that. Uh, this, is, this is the same thing that Satan tried when he was trying to deconstruct what God had constructed from the beginning. And so this is nothing, nothing new. And so I, I, I want to mm -hmm. open up to more questions with regard to that. Yeah, so, no. So w w one of the things that we continue to see with evangelical social justice warriors or social justicians is the idea that they want to make the church woke. Mm -hmm. All right. And so when you preach a woke Jesus and you have a woke church and a woke gospel, and you've really replaced theology with this idea of victimology. Mm -hmm. 
And so let's move away from the idea of racism or ethnic prejudice and police brutality. We'll come back to that in George Floyd in just a few moments. But let's, let's talk for a moment about what does the social justice movement do for women? Because you see in the culture, you hear this consistent drumbeat that social justice is good for women. And then when you take that and you bring it into the life of the church or evangelical denominations, what does that look like and what can we expect? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with, re- with regard to what social, social justice, first of all, you have to understand what it actually is uh, and what it actually is not. Um, and, and then breaking that apart and then applying that to what advantage would that have for women? It, it, it's the same in every category. First, in order for, for a woman to benefit from a standpoint of, of social justice, she has to become a victim of some kind. There has to be some internet, in, intersectional force uh, by which she's been victimized, uh, done wrong, uh, and harmed in some way, shape, or form. And, and then from there, because of that victimology, there's something that's owed to her by not just society, but by government as well. So now what we've done is we've created a brand new anthropology. We've disengaged from the biblical anthropology of male and female created in the image of God, equal in value, dignity, and worth, and having distinct roles, right? What we've done now is said this is a, this is a different creature, and as a result, we have, to, we have to interact with that creature differently. And so for the, for the social justician, the, the excitement for them is now that they've got this victim and this victim uh, is a large part of society, they can be used from an emotional standpoint to gain and attract power, right? The social justician can leverage this emotional ex- ex- uh, individual who's now brokenhearted about their victimhood uh, and, and leverage them for their purposes and causes. That's no different from what they do with every single group in every single category, uh, whether it's a black person, uh, a white person, a Hispanic person, what have you. They've got to identify the victimhood status in an effort to leverage that for the purpose of power. So not only was Virgil right there in terms of victimhood, what you have to understand within the social justice uh, uh, concept of justice, uh, victimhood is virtuous. Absolutely. Victimhood is a virtue. So the more, uh, the more impover- impoverished you are, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, uh, that's something to be lauded. Uh, the, uh, the more uh, children you have uh, as a single mother, that's something to be lauded. Because all those, uh, all those situations and circumstances help check off their intersectional boxes. So what Virgil here is talking about here, he's introducing another term, intersectionality. So the the more types of victimhood that the social justice movement can identify, the the greater their cause and the louder they yell. So so the more categories that they can include into their victimhood under that victimhood umbrella, that makes their, 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 their cause broader, more expansive, and then that puts extra pressure on the church to respond. But they're looking for the church to respond not in a gospel context, but in a worldly context. You see, the God of the social justice movement is government. It's not the God of the Bible. The God of the social justice movement is government because every single solution that the social justice, justice movement posits is government connected. We dealt with this um, 
in our episode on um, um, where we, uh, uh, we, we looked at uh, the guy in North Carolina with his uh, anti-poverty movement. Uh, yeah, yep. Um, I can't recall his name right now, but he, uh, uh, Reverend, uh, Reverend somebody. Yeah. All of them are reverends. So. Yeah, Rever <laughs> Reverend somebody. Re Reverend something. But he's got this organization. We read from his website where he read this, uh, he read this prayer, this petition to the government. Yes. But it reads like a prayer to God. This, this chapter is going to be included in our book that's coming out in August, by the way. But my point here is this. Social, by definition, okay, social gospel, by definition, is a man-centered, man-concocted, man-resolved uh, worldview that is antithetical to the biblical gospel, because not only do you have a different God, you also have a different salvation. Let me, let me, I want to tag on to what you just said with regard to your question mm -hmm. specifically. Mm -hmm. What the social, what the, so, what the social justice gospel, the social justice, I don't even want to call it a gospel. Mm -hmm. What social justice offers the woman is the exact same thing that the serpent offered to Eve in the garden. That's right. Okay, it is the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. It's autonomy. It's um, she can become a god. Mm. That's what's being offered, and so her, her god, the power, comes from government. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, she can become god. What about in the church? So we hear corporations that are responding immediately to this social justice movement related to women. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it was Delta and some other airlines recently stated that they're going to start training women to fly airplanes at a higher rate right. than they have in the past to increase their percentage. 50% men, men and women, black men, blacks and women would be 50% by 2050. Right. Something like that. So now we come over into the church and you hear little girls coming into the church and now they're hearing the same message at school, on the, the radio, on social media. And now suddenly you have a conversation, should women be pastors? Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's affecting even the church and the conversation that we're having within evangelicalism. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, absolutely. Everything from, from Beth Moore, um, and, and you've written about this extensively, and I, I know the people here are very clear and, and aware of, of what's going on, the, the attack on complementarianism that's taking place, the, the, the amplification of, of egalitarianism and women as pastors and preachers and leaders and thinkers. And I, I love what, what I've heard Josh say over and over about this, Pastor Josh say over and over about this particular issue. And, and, and that is, this, is, this does not speak to uh, ability or lack thereof. This does not speak to equality or lack thereof or skill set or lack thereof. It really boils down to what does the Bible have to say about these issues? Mm -hmm. And the question then becomes, are we going to follow scripture or are we going to be motivated and moved by what we see happening in the culture? Amen. And at the end of the day, uh, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to side with Christ. I'm going to side with what scripture has to say. Uh, and, and, and that's where I'm going to hang my hat. And, and any young girl that would come along in a, in a church and, and be tempted by what the culture is, is prescribing, I'm going to show her scripturally how that is not to her benefit. 
uh, how it is, it is the role of, of a man, of a husband to provide protection and to provide oversight and for men in the church as elders to provide leadership and oversight and shepherding. There's a reason for those things. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand with scripture. You know, uh, as you read the Gospels, one of the things that um, Jesus um, is referred to repeatedly in the Gospel is, being, is, is as being someone who spoke with authority. Uh, matter of fact, several verses in the Gospels say that the people that Jesus spoke to were amazed, mm -hmm. not just about what he said, mm -hmm. but that what he said was said with authority. Yes. Now, when it comes to these issues like complementarianism versus egalitarianism, the role of women, uh, one of my favorite passages that comes to mind is Luke chapter 6, verse 46, where Jesus himself says, this is probably the mic drop of all rhetorical questions that you'll find in Scripture is why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Mm. Now, that's a question each one of us has to ask. So if we ask, had some ham and B right about now, <laughs> I, would tune, I would tune it up right about now. That's a question that every single believer must ask and answer the moment you open your eyes every morning. So my question to those, and there are those, there are very powerful people within evangelicalism, more specifically within the SBC, that are pushing complementarianism. I'm sorry, egalitarianism. They're pushing egalitarianism. Um, and it's not just Beth Moore. Beth Moore has men in her corner within the SBC who are pushing egalitarianism. So my, but my question to them is this. If you profess to believe in Jesus, if you profess to believe, believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, why do you not do what he says? Mm -hmm. Why is this so difficult? To understand. Uh, listen, husbands have a uh, subordinate role under Christ within right. the home. Mm -hmm. So husbands aren't exempt from this. Yeah. We, we're accountable to Christ ourselves. Matter of fact, we're close in God's, in God's marital hierarchy, we're closer to accountability to God than the wife is. There, there's no buffer between the husband and Christ in terms of accountability. The wife has her submission to the husband as she submits to the Lord. So there's one buffer level between her and God. But the question remains, why is this an issue? If Christ speaks with authority, and he does, if Christ alone is God, and he is, why is this such an issue? It's an issue because of Genesis 3. That's right. Not only do we not like what God says, we want to take God's place. Right. That's the depravity of the human heart. We want to take God's place. So why, why do we, why do, it's, it's, it's just so contradictory to say you belong to Christ's church. You would acknowledge that the church belongs to Christ. Everyone would acknowledge that. But when it comes to these roles of women, you want to change how Christ has established his church? It, go, it goes back to the question that you and I asked in the past episode, right, that we did on um, activist, activist theology. theology. Because during that episode, we, we, we raised the question, whose church is it? Whose church is it? Who, whose church is it? Is it our church to decide how, how it should work, uh, what we should do, how we should worship, how we should function, or is it Christ's church, and has he provided instruction 
for how that should, how that should all play out. If we believe that to be true, then we open up the book, we, we, we turn pages, yep. we figure out what's said, and we operate from that vein. That's how mm -hmm. that should work. Yeah, yeah. Brothers, recently, if you just survey the past year, you will find publication after publication, uh, news publication, newspaper, heading after heading, that deals with the issue of white supremacy, racism. Uh, again, all of this constant drumbeat of white supremacy and racism being traced back to the slavery era and Jim Crow. So when we think about the disparities of the black population, think about dropout rate, think about joblessness, think about drug use, incarceration, all of these things. Um, we consistently hear the culture, sociologists and others, even within the evangelical circles now, who are tracing all of these disparities with a straight line without any curves, right. straight back to slavery, straight back to Jim Crow. And so now it's the white man or it's the white population that's to blame. So why don't you guys touch on that? Ooh, 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 can I take that one? We, we can, we can, well, one, I mean, I, I definitely want you to jump in. I, and I'll, I'll probably interrupt you a bunch of times on this one. Let's do it. There's just, there's just a lot of what you, that, in that one question are so many facets mm -hmm. to address. Um, every, every, I mean, you could deal with the fact that the, the, the wrongheaded idea that every inequity is, is, connected directly to systemic racism of mm -hmm. some kind. That's a, that's a problem. Um, the idea that in, in all of culture, I don't know who's worshiping uh, uh, the God of whiteness more, right, than mm -hmm. those who are making claim that, that, that whiteness is omniscient, whiteness is omnipotent, uh, white, whiteness is, it's a, it's a powerful drug, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, it is, it is incredibly powerful. It, it, it is more powerful and more sovereign at points than God. You just preached on the sovereignty of God. But, but what we've seen shared in the culture is this idea of the sovereignty of whiteness. Yeah. And its impact in every facet of, of not only my life, but in everyone's life. Mm -hmm. it, is, it is omniscient. It is, it is omnipotent. It, it is all things. And so... That, that alone could be a topic for, for, a, yeah. for a particular episode. So let me press just a moment. You're looking at a predominantly white congregation this evening. So do we need to repent of, for our whiteness and white supremacy for holding back the black population? So Daryl, go ahead, brother. Man, look. <laughs> um, no, first of all. That's the short answer. That's the short answer. Again, but this is where the gospel comes in. Why, why should anybody have to apologize over an attribute of their personhood that God sovereignly gave them? Who are you going to apologize to? Why, why, why would I apologize? Why would anyone in here have to apologize for an attribute that was sovereignly and providentially uh, applied to you as part of your uniqueness in the Imago Dei right. as being created in the image of God. Right. Add, uh, add to that, hold, hold your thought. Add, add to that, add to that the <clears throat> idea that, that do I not worship a God who's well able regardless of any, any onslaught against me to, to help me to accomplish that which he's 
required of me? Mm-hmm. Do I serve a God so weak that he's unable to help me overcome whatever the issue that stands against me? Uh, is, he, is he so frail that, that he, he's, he's not... Whiteness put, holds, hold, puts, puts, puts cuffs around him, right? Whiteness stops him in his track. He was going to bless me. White, whiteness is God's kryptonite. Right. <laughs> is what it is. He was going to bless me. He was going to bless you, but... but whiteness <laughs> stepped in the way and God... Man, get White, out of here. Whiteness with is that God's kryptonite, man. Uh, who who remembers playing hops, hopscotch as a kid? <laughs> Josh brought up slavery in the question. This is one of my favorite topics, slavery. See, the social justice movement treats slavery like a hopscotch game. Uh, how many of you here have heard of the 1619 Project? So, let me put this down, because I'm going to need some room up here. <laughs> Let me talk to you about slavery for a second. Slavery, I'm using the metaphor of a hopscotch game because when you, when you, you, those of you who know how the hopscotch game is played, you have a grid of numbers. Uh, I, I remember playing it numbers one through 10. Uh, you start off with putting a stone on the first number, then you go in numerical order across the hopscotch board. In hopping across the hopscotch board, you cannot hop on the square that has the stone on it. Otherwise, you're, you're out. You can't step on the line or anything. The social justice movement treats slavery like a hopscotch game. So what they'll do is they'll usually start at the year 1619, which historically is when the first African slave stepped foot on North American soil in Jamestown, Virginia in 1619. But if you really want to have an honest conversation, an intellectually honest conversation about slavery, you cannot start at 1619. You probably have to go back a couple thousand years so what we need is a 1618 project, not a 1619 project, because we need to understand what happened before 1619. The reason 1619 happened is because Af- black Africans who look just like me sold their own people to Europeans to profit from the transatlantic slave trade. But the social justice gospel, they skip all that. See, this is where the hopscotch game comes in. It's not they'll to their skip advantage. all that. It's not to their advantage. They'll skip that history. Yeah because it doesn't fit the narrative. So they start with white slave owners in America in 1619. They don't want to talk about black slave owners in Africa. And even after you get to slavery in America, there were still black slave owners in the South before the Emancipation Proclamation was ever issued. So if you want to talk about slavery, we have to talk about, listen, slavery has always been a global problem. You go back and look at the routes that the slave ships took during the transatlantic slave trade. Do you know if you, trans, if, if you trace those routes? Now, America didn't become a nation until 1776. But I'm going to use, I'm gonna, you're going to hear me say America just for sake of conversation. If you would look at the routes of the, the uh, transatlantic slave trade and the number of slaves that were transported and dropped off in these various countries around the world, do you know the United States wouldn't even be in the top 20? But you won't hear that. From, you won't hear that from social justice. You will never hear that. You know the country that got the most slaves from the mid-1500s all the way up to the 1850s? Brazil. You know who got more than the United States? Brazil, Jamaica, Cuba, the Bahamas, 
I could go on and on. Arabia, Libya. I could go on and on. But the narrative is that those, most of you in this room who are white are at fault. There would have been no slavery in America if there hadn't been people who looked like me. So you can't play the, hop, the hopscotch game when it comes to slavery. You just can't say put a stone on it and say, no, I'm going to skip what happened between, before 1619. Let's just, start, let's just start at 16. I'm going to put my rock on 1619, and then we're going to play the hopscotch game from there. You see, I think that's one reason why Virgil and I get such pushback from, see, most pushback we get from our podcast is from black people. I've never had a white person call me coon. Never. Never had a white person call me um, Uncle Tom. Speaking of Uncle Tom, before you call me Uncle Tom, somebody go pick up a book. Go, somebody go, go buy Harriet Beecher Stowe's book, Uncle Tom's Cabin, read it, and then you'll find out that when you call me Uncle Tom, you're actually paying me a compliment. <laughs> because in that story, Uncle Tom is the hero. He's the hero. Uncle Tom is a, Christ, a Christological figure in Uncle Tom. Spoiler alert, Uncle Tom dies. Uncle Tom is beaten to death by his owner while preaching the gospel to the man who's beating him to death. Okay, so slavery is another, uh, Joshua was talking earlier about language. Slavery is another one of those words where as Christians, we have got to be informed enough to be able to say, hold on, wait a minute. You really want to talk about slavery? We can't start at 1619. We got to go all the way back to Africa. Now, I, I sit, I'm going to turn it over to, to Virgin Joshua in just a second, but I want to make this point. You drive this home. Just so you don't think I'm just talking a bunch of stuff that I read in some books. Which is nothing wrong with that. Which is nothing wrong with that. Okay. I just want to be clear. Because as, 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 <laughs> as you guys who listen to the Justin Your Podcast, you've heard me say on more than one occasion, uh, outside, of the ish, the, the to, outside the topic of theology, I study slavery more than any other topic. If you were to visit Grace to You, which I hope you get to do one day, I'd love to give you guys a tour but if you were to visit Southern California, come to Grace to You, and you're in my office, you'll see that I have more books in my office on slavery uh, other than the topic of, of theology. I sit here before you today as a descendant of African slave owners. Hmm. Owners. On my father's side of the family, we traced our roots all the way back to the Balanta people in Guinea-Bissau, West Africa. The Balanta were rice harvesters. They were rice farmers. Read the book Black Rice. There's a book on Amazon you can get. It's titled Black Rice. Read that book. Read also a book by Walter Hawthorne. It's titled Planting Rice, Harvesting Slaves. Planting Rice, Harvesting Slaves. Those books uh, give a historical objective account of the role of African rice farmers, namely the Balanta tribe, in f helping facilitate the transatlantic slave trade. They sold their own, the Balanta sold their own people to the Portuguese in exchange for farming tools that helped them to become more productive uh, in, in their, in their, in their uh, harvesting of rice. Uh, so I sit here as someone who has uh, running in his veins the blood of slave owners. But we have to have courage enough to push back against this narrative. Don't fall for the hopscotch game. Don't fall for that. A couple things that will help you with that, two books that I would commend to you, um, 
and Thomas Sowell, for those who don't know, is he's, he's not a theologian, he's an economist. Um, but he's done a phenomenal job of tracing uh, back the uh, kind of the, the, the global slave trade. Uh, two books that, that I would recommend. One is uh, Discrimination and Disparities. Fantastic book for you to read. Thomas Sowell, S-O-W-E-L-L, um, Discrimination and Disparities. Uh, the other book was really, really informative. I think it was one of the first books that I actually picked up by uh, Dr. Thomas Sowell. It's a book called Black Rednecks and White Liberals. A funny title, right? Black Rednecks, White Liberals. There's a, there's a point to the reason why he's chosen the title. Uh, and and he, he goes all the way back to redneck culture uh, and how blacks were impacted by it and how what we're seeing even in, in society and in culture today is a demonstration or reflection of some of the backwards things that they learned uh, from, from, from culture during that, that time frame. Those are two books that, that I would commend to you. Daryl mentioned. Real quick, since you're on, since you're on Soul, yep. um, The Quest for Cosmic Justice by so Thomas Soul. The Quest for Cosmic Justice by Thomas Soul. Also, Soul's book titled Ethnic America. Ethnic America is an excellent book that uh, we're told, where uh, Soul goes back in history and, and gets uh, data and statistics to show you how, over the course of America's history, we actually came to be this melting pot of various ethnicities. So Ethnic America by Soul, and then The Quest for Cosmic Justice by Thomas Soul. I, I, I add these to your library because we need to be, we need to be very astute on these issues. Uh, we need to understand them. We need to understand the nature of what's happening is sin. So th these are all theological issues. But how, the, how, the, how historically these things have broken down, it's helpful to have tools like these, resources like these, uh, in an effort to understand what's going on. Yeah, so back to the original question, here's the, here's the issue. When you see the disparities and you hear people saying it is because of slavery or it is because of Jim Crow that the black population can't reach the goals or they're experiencing a lot of dropouts or incarceration and, and all these disparities, how would, you, how would you address that? Because we know it's not slavery and it's not Jim Crow, but some of the issues related to discipleship in the home. Can I, can I go first on that verse, yes. if you don't mind? Yes. Um, homework assignment. Go home and Google Moynihan report. Report, 1965 Moynihan Report. 1965 Moynihan Report. Um, Josh said the key words there at the end, in the home. The social justice movement would have you believe that God's universal principle of reaping and sowing should not be efficacious in the world. Meaning that if we make decisions that violate God's principles, that we shouldn't reap the repercussions of those decisions. The Moynihan Report from 1965, what you'll find is that the same problems that exist in black communities, communities today existed 65 years ago. And, and to a lesser degree, as you go backwards. So from the Moynihan Report, as you go backwards historically, you go back to Jim Crow, you go back to segregation, you go back to some of these other issues, you, you, saw, um, you saw marriages intact, 
Uh, you saw fathers in the home. You saw all of these other issues that the Moynihan Report exposed. There was a problem. If you go backwards, so, so the idea that you could attach the, the impact to slavery, what it, should, what it should suggest is that the closer to slavery you get, the worse, worse the impact is. But what you're seeing is the farther away from slavery you get, and the more free of opportunities and the like that, that, that those who are suffering these issues are receiving, especially with government help and assistance, yeah. you're seeing the situation become worse. By the way, what you'll find if you read the Moynihan Report is you're going to find that the phrase government help and assistance is a non sequitur. It's oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms. Okay, Virgil's exactly right. It's an excellent point. The further you go back from the 60s, the more intact the black family was. The more intact marriages were. Marriages were, divorce rates were in the single digits. Mm -hmm. uh, so as bad as Jim Crow, as sim I should say as sinful, I want to be very specific here. As sinful as Jim Crow was, mm -hmm. it, 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 it drew uh, black families together because all they had was one another. Um, as far as family unit goes, there was also the church. But this was before the church became an extension of the NAACP. Mm -hmm. This was before on, the church Come became on, a civil rights organization. Come See, this on, is what man. the social justice movement would have you believe, that the church is a civil rights organization. We said this, we made this point in the activist theology episode that we just released a couple weeks ago. This is a problem with the social justice movement and churches that embrace it, is that they have believed the lie that the church is, is supposed to be a civil rights movement. Uh, so, so we have... Uh, Efforts within evangelicalism now to make churches more multi-ethnic. Mm -hmm. Multi-ethnic. But see, every church, every true church is already multi-ethnic. You go back to Exodus. Go back to Exodus. I think it's Exodus 18. I may be mistaken, but it is in Exodus. Even when God brought his people out of bondage uh, in Egypt, there's a verse that says that those people that came out were, were a mixed multitude. A mixed multitude. God's people have always been multi-ethnic. Okay? So we're talking about language again. Understand, the term race is a Darwinian evolutionary term. The biblical term is ethnicity. Acts 17.26. Our foundational verse, if we would have one for the Just Thinking podcast, would be Acts 17, 26, especially around issues such as what we're talking about this evening. Acts 17, 26, for God made from one man, that man is Adam, every nation on the face of the earth. That word nation in the Greek is the word ethnos from where we get our English word what? Ethnicity. Race is a Darwinian evolutionary term invented by Dr. Samuel Morton, who is a, uh, uh, a uh, contemporary of Darwin uh, and known as the father of scientific racism. Uh, race was never used to describe the human genus prior to Darwin. But we've adopted the term in the church. And one thing, if you've listened to the Justin podcast long enough, you will understand Almost a third of every episode, we spend defining terms. Why do you think we, we do that? Because the world will hook you with the language. So you get terms like, like, like uh, Virgil was saying earlier, you get terms like justice, uh, uh, equality, fairness. Uh, the gospel ain't about fairness. 
Thank God it's not about fairness. You don't want fair. You don't want fair. You don't want fair. You want mercy. And, you you want, want and what grace. you don't want, you don't want justice either. No. <laughs> <laughs> See, here, 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 here's a biblical, a biblical analogy for you. Josh was talking about woke Jesus earlier. John the Baptist. Talking about John the Baptist this morning in John's sermon, Luke chapter 1. John the Baptist was unjustly arrested. Will we all agree? John the Baptist was arrested because he dared to speak the truth to Herod about his adulterous relationship that he was carrying on with his brother's wife. Herodias got angry, talked Herod into putting him in jail, and the text actually says that when Herod put him in jail, it says Herod added to all his other sins putting John the Baptist in jail. Now, while John is in jail, he knows that his death is imminent. John knows, John the Baptist knows this. But he sends a couple of his disciples. It's a very, this is a very sobering moment for John. When you read this, and for us as well, when you read the text, he says, listen, I want you to go and ask Jesus, is he really the, the expected one, or are we to wait for someone else? Mm-hmm. Jesus says to John the Baptist's disciples, this is the biblical Jesus talking. He says, go back and tell John what you have seen and what you have heard. You've seen the lame walk, the blind see, you've seen the deaf hear. And lastly, Jesus said, you've, had, you've seen the poor have the gospel preached to them. Now, woke Jesus would have said this. Woke Jesus would have said, go back and tell John that nobody's homeless Everyone has food to eat. All student loan debt has been canceled. <laughs> so that, that's, we, the, the police have been defunded. <laughs> so that's woke Jesus. <coughs> but see, the biblical Jesus allowed John the Baptist to behead, be beheaded. Mm. Now, Jesus could have just thought it and, and had John freed. But my point here is this. The, the, one of the lies of the social gospel is that there should be no consequences for your bad decisions. Now, John the Baptist didn't make a bad decision, but the, my point is this. Again, like I said earlier, Jesus didn't come to save society. It glorified God in his sovereignty, as John preached this morning, that John the Baptist be beheaded. Josh made the point this morning that John the Baptist's ministry was only months long. Jesus' ministry itself was only three and a half years. But the lie of the social gospel is that we serve a Jesus who's supposed to meet, met every felt need, but he didn't. Jesus healed a lot of people, but he didn't heal everybody. He felt a lot of people. Matter of fact, Jesus got angry. He, he, he actually, he repudiated the people who followed him only because he met people's needs. Every miracle Jesus did wasn't for the sake of the miracle. It's so that the miracle will point to him as the Messiah. So even after you feed the hungry and you clothe the naked and you house the homeless, Jesus, see, this is why Jesus left last that the poor had the gospel preached. Because even when you do all that to the poor, the poor are going to die. What good is a poor lost sinner 
who has clothes, a house, and a job. That's the social gospel. That's not the biblical gospel. The biblical gospel is not that Jesus came to save society. Please remember that. Let me put a, let me put a button on what, what you asked, Josh, because you were asking us about, and you had mentioned the Moynihan Report. Mm-hmm. And I just looked, and at the time, and, and so the question, and, and again, I, I know the, the purpose of the question is for the equipping of the saints. And so I totally understand kind of what, what do you do when you're, when, you're fa- when you're at work and you're hit with all of these questions about the, the inequities, and, and they're all pointed back to one thing, which was something that happened regarding slavery. And, and um, Daryl hit it just out of the ballpark. Uh, he mentioned the Moynihan Report, 1965, 1970. This report comes out and it's looked at black families and what it's noticed is that 30% of black families are, 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 are coming into existence with single uh, parent homes, right? Single mothers. And, and what, what Moynihan says, uh, he talks about this in his report I'm looking at. He says at the heart uh, of, of this issue is the deterioration of the fabric of, of Negro society. The, the, what's, what's at the heart of the, the deterioration of Negro society is the, the deterioration of the Negro family. Mm. He's saying what's at the heart of the issue, what's at the heart of the problem, what we see that's going to be the, the destroying nature, the destroying factor for, for blacks. And, and he looked at the whole of society. But when he, when he crunched the numbers, the numbers in particular for African Americans, for blacks at the time, were, were astronomical at 30%. At 30%. You, you move closer to, the de- to today where the numbers are in the range of 72%. 72%. And, and again, you can go back and look at, statistically speaking, the, 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 the impact of a fatherless home. And, and it's astronomical. Fa- fathers' lives matter. They, they, they matter in the home. Uh, it, it matters that a man who understands, knows, and loves God is shepherding his family properly. I wish it was the I wish it was the, the magic wand to, to cure every all the sin that happens in the home. But we know we're going to have we, we, we bear sinners. I mean, that's the nature of of, of the fallen nature of, of, of society. Right. But at the heart of that is is God has established an order for family in the home. Uh, and that is a father and a mother and children. Uh, and, and it's important. And all he did was chronicle. He, he, he categorized that and said, here's a problem that we're seeing on the horizon. So when you look at the problems that we're seeing in society, the impact of, 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 of children who, who, who were riding in the streets, the, the, the horrific issue that we saw uh, recently of the young lady who uh, raced out of her home with a knife and tried to attack two other young ladies. The first question you should ask when you see that is not, what did the policeman do? It's, where's the dad? Where's, where's the father in that home that, that wouldn't allow his daughter to, to grab a knife and go attack other people? Where's the value of, of human life in the home that has been taught by the example of a husband and a wife in a home? Those are the questions that need to be asked. Can I say, just add this real quick, Josh, uh, one word about disparities. Uh, uh, again, uh, to the point we've been hammering home here uh, this evening, uh, pay attention to the language. Pay attention to the words that woke uh, individuals use. And one of the words they'll use is disparity. Uh, and what you have to understand is that the word disparity presupposes a standard of equality that already existed. Okay, so when someone says that there's a disparity between black 
X and white X. Don't be so quick to absorb that. Sometimes there's disparities and then sometimes there's just differences. What people mean when disparity, it's just a difference. It's not a disparity. Let me give you an example. Josh is a homeowner. I'm a homeowner. Josh pays his mortgage. He keeps his house. If I don't pay my mortgage, I lose my house. Is that a disparity or a difference? It's a difference. That's just a difference. That's not a disparity. See, the disparity would say that I should keep my home in spite of the fact that I didn't pay my mortgage. And that's also the distinction between equity and equality. Equity and equality. They're not the same thing, folks. One of the other things that's not the same thing is, is, is the idea of, 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 of correlation and causation. Right? These are, these are I mean, it, it's crazy that you have to sit You're down. You're going back to my point down. earlier about the universal principle Words. of reaping and sowing. Yeah. Causation doesn't mean, I mean, correlation, when you see something happening to a group of people, doesn't mean that the cause automatically goes back to racism. There's a, there could be a lot of causes that, that equate to this correlation. And we've got to examine each one individually to determine what is, is at issue. But I go back to something that, that you said with regard to disparity. We act as if the, the, the great commandment is there shall be no disparity. Right. Thou shalt not have disparity. Thou shalt not have any, 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 any difference between you. Um, and, and the reality is that's a, that's a falsehood. That's what's being propagated by culture. Any disparity is equal to sin. Right. And, mm -hmm. and the cause is automatically white racism. Mm -hmm. That's the cause. That's at the root cause. Right. And so they've identified the sin, they've identified the cause, and they're saying that the cure is now works-based righteousness. You'll be involved in anti-racist works for the rest of your life, and, and, and they never actually atone for the sin of racism. So if you're going to bow your knee to that idol, you're going to be serving that idol in, in, in perpetuity forever. Mm -hmm. Because it's never sufficient to provide salvation. Yeah. It's a false gospel. It's a Absolutely. grievance gospel. Absolutely. It's a grievance gospel. Exactly. All right, so moving right along, we've got to pick up the speed here. So I'm going to ask you for... Oh, man, do we have to? Yeah, we do. <laughs> we have to pick up the speed. Um, so one word answer here. Okay. Um, <laughs> I like that guy. <laughs> um, do you believe that black lives matter? No. In what way? It's just a simple yes or no question. No. All right. All right. So in terms of the organization, talk to me about the organization. Why do you support or not support? Of course, I know you guys don't support the organization. And it's, I've called it a terrorist organization. So you guys speak to the issue about what this organization is doing presently. What's it for? What's the purpose behind it? And should we be using hashtag Black Lives Matter. No, we should not be. I don't support the organization. Uh, it is a Marxist organization. 
by their own admission and definition. Um, they, they're, they're involved in, a, in, the, in the worship of a, of a foreign god, of a pagan deity. Uh, every time they ask you to say someone's name, it is homage to a, a, de- a deity that they worship. And so you need to know these things. Um, I, I, I mean, all of the news that's out currently about, about the use of monies and fundings and all that. I, I made the statement, and I know Josh has, has quoted it, that, that black lives... Black lives have never mattered to Black Lives Matter. Let me say that again. Black lives have never mattered to Black Lives Matter. Hmm. As it pertains to the current issue with, with Derek Chauvin, they, 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 got, they received no benefit in the current outcome. They, they received no benefit in the, in, 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 the, uh, in the guilty verdict that took place. And so what did they do? They move the goalpost. Nancy Pelosi comes out and makes a statement, and then what do they do? They, they chide Nancy Pelosi for the purpose. Why? Because they, they need to create angst and anger. They only benefit. I've even said this. Black lives benefit off of the backs of black dead bodies. Mm. Black, lives, black Lives Matter benefits on the backs of black dead bodies, period. And that's provable. Mm-hmm. That's pr- the, the, the evidence mounds. You, you had a, um, Breonna Taylor's mother who said, you know what, they've used, they've used her name and they've received an income stream from that and we've received no monetary benefit whatsoever from them. We've not, we've not so much as seen them. She's called them a fraud and now others are saying the exact same thing. So, so the, the organization itself is... is I, I call it the new, the, the new age race hustle. Hmm. It, it, I mean, the, 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 old, the old race hustlers, the oh, Sharpton. Al Sharpton and, and, and Jesse Jackson. This is, this is that on steroids. Raphael Warnock. This is, this is them on steroids. Those of you who are familiar with the Just Thinking podcast, you know that last year we dropped six hours of worth of content on Black Lives Matter. Uh, and we pointed out in those episodes, uh, or we did, first episode we did sort of gave you an overview of the structure of the organization, what their goals and objectives are. But in the second episode that we titled The Church of BLM, we established why Black Lives Matter is a religion. It's a church. Um, again, language comes to play here. So you have to ask the question, well, before, you, before I answer the question, do you believe Black Lives Matter? Well, what do you mean by matter? What do you mean by that? Context is critical in these discussions, folks. Mm. Context is critical. So you have to have the wherewithal to recognize when they're trying to reel you in, and they reel you in by the language. Okay, so now, if I'm going to ask, like, like Josh just asked us, do I believe Black Lives Matter? Well, what do you mean by matter? Now, if you're talking about matter in the terms of the Imago Day, yes, they matter by virtue that they were created in the Imago Day. Right. See, Black Lives Matter would have you horizontalize what is a vertical reality for every person. Every human being that's ever walked the face of this earth has been created in the image of God. Black Lives Matter would have you horizontalize that by having you view one another in terms of the imago homo, which is Latin for the image of man. Yeah. 
as, and not the image of God. Right. But you have to keep the conversation elevated to the image of God. So if you're talking about matter in terms of Genesis 127 and that all human beings are created in the image of God, then yes, I, I understand. Yes, I agree Black Lives Matter because that's where the matter comes in. You matter because God chose, God sovereignly and providentially chose to create you in his image. Yeah. But, the, but the point at which they separate a life into, into a, a the level of melanin in the skin mm -hmm. is where the issue comes in. Yeah, but this organization in and of itself, just to put the, the, the capstone on this point, is that um, it, it's really interested in destroying everything that a Christian stands for. Right. Right. It's, a, it's an organization that wants to attack the nuclear family, the family that God himself instituted from the beginning. So they hate the family. And, uh, they hate men. And then, interestingly enough, I was with Bobby. I don't know where Bobby is, but I was out recently at an abortion mill in Atlanta. We were standing on the sidewalk, um, and we were calling out and preaching the gospel. And interestingly enough, at, at a women's clinic where they're killing little black babies, there's a sign hanging in the window for everyone to see out there in the parking lot, Black Lives Matter. It's just an unbelievable thing yeah. when you think about That's it. That's a visual oxymoron of all oxymorons right there, to have a Black Lives Matter sign in front of a Planned Parenthood clinic. When Planned Parenthood exists today as a legacy of the eugenicist Margaret Sanger, who launched her Negro project in 1939 with the help of black pastors. Yeah, that's a whole nother kind of Planned Parenthood has that as part of their legacy. So to have a Black Lives Matter sign in front of a Planned Parenthood is about as oxymoronic as you can get, uh, as, as, as far as that goes. Yeah. Let's talk about George Floyd, and then let's uh, apply biblical wisdom and the gospel to this whole case, this whole story, in just a few minutes, and then we're going to conclude tonight with a time of prayer for our nation and for the current moment where we find ourselves. As we think about the whole George Floyd case and the whole story, um, Proverbs 18.13 says, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and his shame. Five days after the news surfaced last May, May 25th, 2020, regarding George Floyd, leaders within the Southern Baptist Convention released a joint statement that traced what happened on the streets of Minneapolis with Derek Chauvin, the police officer, and, and George Floyd, and his death. They traced it back to the slave era and Jim Crow, so they made it about this idea of racism, right. quote unquote. Right. So this is a massive problem. So let's talk about some what if questions. I just like to ask what if questions, right? So what if that day when George Floyd woke up, what if he had chosen not to engage in the use of counterfeit money? Would he still be alive? He'd still be alive too. What if George Floyd had chosen not to use drugs? Would he still be alive? Now we don't, obviously don't know the answer to all of these questions, but it's really good and it's helpful to so. ask the question mm -hmm. and then to apply biblical wisdom. In the case of, uh, of the officer, Derek Chauvin, let's, let's ask a question. Suppose he was trained to do exactly what he did, but yet when he has four, five, six officers backing him up, he has a man handcuffed on the streets, uh, obviously did not want to get in that, in that patrol car, and he's, he's not resisting anymore, what if he had chosen for the care and the preservation of human life to not hold the knee on his neck, to release the pressure? What if, right? And then go to the mobs, 
Go to the people who were chanting Black Lives Matter and burning down businesses and looting property and and killing police officers. Even black police officers lost their lives over this past year during the riots. What if they had chosen to wait and put some confidence in a justice system, in in law? Um, So what if, right? And then what if evangelical leaders would not rush to conclusions? Because still to this very point, at this very moment, I mean, if he got a fair trial, and if he really is guilty of all the things that they said, of course, the jury, and, and I wasn't on the jury, and I didn't hear all of the evidence, but if all of that was true, it still doesn't necessarily make him a racist. It doesn't make him guilty of ethnic prejudice. Have you heard anything that would demonstrate the reality that this police officer acted out of hate, out of hate and animosity because of the man's skin color? There's nothing, there's nothing evidentiary that would point to that, to that being the motivation for what he did. Had there been, and I'm, I guarantee you everyone has combed through every facet of his email background, I mean, everything that you can imagine. If, if there had been so much as a picture, an image of any kind that indicated that, that there was some racist intent in his heart, we would have all seen it, known about it, all of, all of the world would know about it. And, and even though I would argue that that doesn't necessarily mean that that was the motivation of his heart on that day, there would at least be an indication of something in his history. And you would think, given the nature of, of, of what we say, I mean, you, you comb through any, anything, you know, go, go through your email thread with someone who has a lens by which to look for mm-hmm. something very specific. It would be very easy. Yeah, keywords. There would be keywords. There would be something easy to, to, to identify the motivation of his heart. So I, don't, I didn't see anything that, that I'm aware of. Even if the motivation of his heart was isms, you know, racism, what's the remedy? Yeah, that's the point. Hello? For the, for the Christian, you see, for the Christian, we're talking worldview here, folks. For the Christian, the objective is not to have uh, Derek Chauvin put in jail. That's not the solution. You can still hate somebody from prison. For the, for the believer in Christ, even if that was his motive, you want to see the Lord regenerate that man's heart and have him repent of those motives and believe in the gospel. Amen. You don't change people's heart by sentencing them to jail. That's just punitive. That's not regenerative. It's not regenerative. So even if that was his motive, we, we, we may never know, we won't know unless and until Chauvin admits that himself. We can't read people's hearts. Motive originates in the heart. Mark chapter 7, read that. Jesus said it is from within, from what is inside of you that comes out. The darkness of your heart, what comes out of the heart is what defiles us, not what goes in. So unless and until, see, this is the difference between judgment and condemnation. John 7, 24 says, judge with righteous judgment. Do not judge based solely on appearance. One of the Levitical laws, we're talking about the George Floyd situation, one of the Levitical laws, Jesus makes clear. 
He says, if someone murders someone, you shall not punish him on the evidence of just one witness. Mm-hmm. You need multiple witnesses. This is, this is in Leviticus. This is a Levitical, Levitical law of God. You need more than one witness. But see, what we find in with this whole situation with Floyd and Chauvin, we got, mob, we got a mob of evangelicals calling for this man to virtually be killed. Send him to the death, uh, sentence him to death without a trial, without jurisprudence, without due process. Mm-hmm. That's not even biblical. The justice of God wants equity for the accused as well as the victim. Yeah. Leviticus 19 says, it is a, a sin to give deference even to the poor. The social gospel gives deference to the poor all the time. But God says, no, you should not give deference. You should not be biased to the poor or the rich. Mm-hmm. You see, so even if Chauvin was a racist, I hate that word, racist, the remedy is to have him repent. I have no connection to George Floyd whatsoever other than he's a fellow image bearer of God. Right. right. I am not going to sit here based on a video and use my subjective interpretation of what I see and impart guilt onto this man. That's a sin. One of the other things that's an issue, and and Josh, I know you're trying to wrap things up. One of the other things that that is an issue that we've talked about often is the idea that when when we saw or witnessed something like what happened with George Floyd, it's the idea that and you mentioned this with regard to the, uh, the statement from the Southern Baptist Convention. Mm-hmm. It's the idea that because of the fact that my skin color matches his, I have more outrage or more anger than someone else. The, the, the idea that I could, I could have more outrage or less outrage on the basis of um, uh, the, the melanin in my skin is what that does is that amplifies ethnicity and it minimizes the Imago Dei. Mm-hmm. It, it says, it says a person created in the image of God is not worth anything unless they have a certain melanin count. And when that melanin count matches mine, then I should carry more outrage as a result. Mm-hmm. And so, again, what it appeals to is the sin of partiality. You, you just reminded me, Verge, of when George Floyd was killed on May 25th, 2020. Several days after that, we had several people come up to us individually and together and say, hey, well, well, several white people would ask me this, well, what should we do? What should I do as a white person to, uh, to help black people? You know, this is, May, this is May 25th, 2020. George Floyd's killed. What, what, what should I do to help black people? My answer then and my answer is now, you need to keep doing what you were doing on May 24th, 2020. I don't, I, I am not, don't insult me by inferring because of my skin color that I'm a tribalist before I'm an individualist. Come on. Why do you think each of us have names? <laughs> hmm. I don't call him, hey, black, hey, black guy. I don't know that I'd answer. He, ha- he, he, ha- <laughs> he, he has a name. He has a name. Hmm. He has a name. Go back to Genesis. God God either names everything or he gives Adam the power to name everything. Mm-hmm. Everything that's ever been created has a name. I'm an individual. I'm not some, part of some tribe or some collectivist just because I have a skin color in common with somebody. 
as Virgil said, that robs me of the Imago Dei, and that's an affront to God. Hmm. I want to just say just a word to the church, to uh, all of the guests who are here tonight. Thank you for being here with us. Um, I want to, uh, again, Daryl was mentioning, he was driving home the point about watching, paying very close attention to language. I want to encourage you to use great discernment, not only with language, but also with statistics. Um, Just recently, Chelsea Handler on Twitter tweeted out the following, why would any person of color ever comply with a police officer when there is a 50-50 shot of getting accidentally shot? Well, the reality is that's simply not true statistically. That's a far, like, way exaggeration. It's just not true. It's not even close to being true. When you take the thousands of interactions with, uh, with, with black people from police officers across the nation in a given year, it is not even close to 50-50. Um, so pay close attention to how people use statistics. Also, recently with the whole situation with, um, with this recent shooting where the white police officer came upon the scene and there was this woman stabbing another woman and, and, sh- and she was shot and she was killed. As sad as that may be, if you watch the entire video, which is out there for you to see, within about 16 or 17 seconds, the officer arrives on the scene trying to bring peace to a situation that was deadly and had to make a split-second decision to use force against this woman who's about to kill another another person. And immediately, LeBron James, by the way, the new social justice warriors today are basketball players that make millions of dollars and drive Lamborghinis to lecture us about social justice. He tweets out a picture of this white police officer and says, you're next. All right, now, so then he he deletes it. And then he explains that the reason that he deleted it, the reason that he said it in the first place was because he's so angry about all of, the, uh, all of the, the killings and the murder and the police brutality and so on and so forth. Be very, very cautious. I hope that if you watch basketball and you like LeBron James, that you can somehow have a category for his ability on the court and then the stupid things that he might say on Twitter. Be very, very cautious to not just be sucked into the social justice movement because of influential people like a LeBron James. We need to be very careful and cautious. So let's end with the gospel. Galatians 3, 28 and 29 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And so as we consider the truth of this conversation this evening and the truth of God's Word, I want to urge us as believers to think biblically and to apply biblical wisdom to every situation that we face in this life. Every decision that you make this week will have consequence to it. It will have a certain number of consequences, whether good or bad. So make good choices. When you experience pressure, make good choices. When you experience difficulties and you're put at a, at a crossroads to make a decision, make really good choices. Use biblical wisdom as you make these choices, both in how you respond to people and how you treat people. But as we think about whether it be the issues of the way 
uh, women are being sucked into the social justice movement or whether it's the ethnic prejudice component. If anyone should understand how to respond to all of these issues, it should be the church of Jesus Christ. If anyone has the right answer to all of these issues, it should be the church of Jesus Christ. And, and who knows what's coming down the, down the road next. But soon enough, there, there will be another tragedy, another story, there will be another circumstance, and we need to be a voice, not a virtue signal, but we need to be a voice that brings light to a dark world. As we conclude, if you would join me in showing your appreciation to Daryl Harrison and Virgil Walker. So I want to thank you for joining us for this edition of the G3 Podcast. I want to point you to our website, g3men.org, where you can find resources and articles on various subjects, as well as the archives of this very podcast. I would also point you to the information related to the upcoming conference. It is our G3 National Conference this fall. You can find out information on our website. We also have just recently released our pre-conference on the subject of pastoral ministry, and we have one for both English and Spanish. You can find all of that information at our website. And of course, we look forward to seeing you next week on the G3 podcast and hopefully in person at the G3 National Conference this fall. May God bless you. We'll see you next week on the G3 podcast. Thank you.